0: HD Insights podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Unicure. Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences.
1: Hello, and welcome to the HD Insights podcast. Thank you for joining me today. As always, I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communication, and Outreach at the Huntington Study Group. On this episode, Dr. Daniel Clausen continues our series of conversations on the Venezuela project that discovered the Huntington disease gene. Today, he speaks with Dr. Leon Durr, professor and director of the Division of Pediatric Neurology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. As a pediatric neurologist, Dr. Dorr brings a slightly different perspective on his Venezuela experience. Additionally, he and Dr. Claussen have a more in-depth conversation about the clinical impacts of HD on young people. So without further delay, here's Dr. Claussen's conversation with Dr. Leon Dorr.
2: Well, thank you everyone for joining me for another podcast uh, where we're trying to highlight some of the uh, disparities of care in Huntington's and come up with solutions to uh, solve these, these issues. It's a great pleasure for me to be joined by uh, Dr. Leon Doerr, who's the uh, professor of neurology at uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham. He is the uh, William B. White Jr. Chair in Pediatric Neurology. And the division uh, director of, of uh, pediatric neurology. Thanks for joining me, Leon. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. So, so Leon, I've I've always enjoyed talking to you about um, pediatric movement disorders. I think you have a really unique um, vantage point of looking how this field uh, has evolved over the years. I guess um, I'm really interested to know from your Uh, own kind of personal journey uh, to to getting to where you are now how did how did the role of the Venezuela uh, project uh, come about how did you how did you get involved in that
3: well um, I was when I finished my training in in pediatric neurology I I wanted to uh, get expertise both both in the lab and in movement disorders and I was very fortunate to get a Position in the lab of Ann Young and Jack Penny, and I was doing work in their lab. And I had read about the Venezuela project, and I sort of went to Ann at one point and said, "You know, you—I'm a pediatric neurologist, and I'm learning movement disorders, and uh, I actually speak some Spanish. Um, would this be something I could could take part in?" And um, Anne was really gracious and and generous and sort of uh, pitched for me, and I I think she ended up, you know, paid for me out of her grant uh, to go and and be a part of it. And uh, I'll be very honest, I mean, I was a very insignificant uh, cog in that giant machine. I mean, uh, it was a very impressive project and and one that taught me a lot uh, in my subsequent career.
2: So so what was it like when you got there for the first time? Do you do you have any kind of impressions about um the environment, both kind of your colleagues and also the patients that you saw?
3: Yeah, I mean, I could go on. I mean, the uh the first thing is is that people need to realize that again, this was before we had cell phones. I mean, this was a, a fairly low tech operation. And uh, the usual plan was, I think the month of March was, was when the project was down there and there was a rotating cast of neurologists and psychiatrists and um, a variety of other people to sort of help out with all the tasks that were, were taking place. And the first thing was, is that it was an uncomfortable environment because it was hot. I mean, really hot. (laughs) And (laughs) I mean, very hot. Um, but the uh, we were housed in a hotel, a, a, a nice hotel, but we didn't spend a great deal of our waking hours there. And uh, typically what would happen is, is that the group would pile into rental cars and go to a location, sort of set up a, uh, a clinic for the day, and then proceed to evaluate folks, recruit people for the study, uh, draw blood. Uh, there was just a, a number of different stations that one could occupy. And when I got there, I was sort of given a orientation about the different places. And And my role was primarily with the neurologist. And so um, we would typically have a, a subject sitting in front of us, and there would be one examiner Typically, one of the senior neurologists. Then there would be somebody more junior, like myself, videoing that um, encounter, and then maybe one or two other people who were also watching and filling out what was at that time the UHDRS uh, motor scale. And all that information was then captured and and coded, and we would do that all day long. And at the end of the day, then the all these scores would be Put together, they would be collated. They would then be entered into a computer uh, for subsequent analysis. And this was mirrored by uh, folks that were involved in genetic uh, mapping studies, people that were doing neuropsychological testing in the in the field, uh, folks that were obtaining more updated pedigree information. It's a, it was an amazing amount of paperwork that was generated on a daily basis, and then put into
2: a, a form that could be used for for science. Well, so I, I want to ask you a quick question kind of about your opinions of of just recollecting how the UHDRS motor score was then and how it may have evolved over time. Do, do you remember much about that motor score? What were the things that you were particularly looking at?
3: Well, it was, um, I, I have to say that it was, and And, as a junior person, it was an uh, an amazing experience, because what I learned was is that here was a scale that could fit on two sides of a piece of paper and uh, was very focused and and focused towards making a diagnosis of the uh, of Huntington's disease by motor criteria. That's really what it was for. You know. And uh, yeah. it also included uh, a and fon scale and then a, a essentially a, a global impression of whether you thought the, the person really had Huntington's or not. But the goal was to make a diagnosis. And the reason was that uh, we were taking blood for genetics for all these folks. And you did not want to make a diagnosis in someone who truly did not have Huntington's disease. So it was a great sort of screening and sorting tool in that regard. I mean, how it later evolved into perhaps not be the best scale for uh, long-term clinical trials, I mean, I, I don't know if that's really what it was was designed for
2: initially. That's really interesting. I mean, if you think about kind of the scale um, in terms of the challenges with diagnosing, I guess my sense is that you probably relied on Korea as a main diagnostic tool is that fair to say or or is it were you seeing kids that had maybe more dystonic forms yeah so
3: um in the adults it was a lot of things like um, saccade generation was really important um and the 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 the, the, uh, demonstration of korea and being able to bring that out in most of the adults. um in kids i would I, I would say it probably wasn't the best uh, the best scale because it didn't it was it's hard to capture anything other than dystonia and perhaps rigidity on that old UHDRS. Um, on the other hand, most of these kids that we saw were pretty obvious in terms of their findings because it was they they were not subtly different from their normal peers in terms of their uh, slowness of
2: movement, their clumsiness, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, when you think back, any any cases kind of jumped out at you, just kind of in terms of the presentation that really stuck with you, just so you could share some kind of ideas of what these folks uh, were coming to you with the symptoms and such?
3: Well, it was, uh, I think one of the things that it, maybe not one case in particular, I mean, there were some uh, really tragic uh, children who uh, were every year you went down there they were demonstrably worse um, but really it had to do with if you went back year after year um, you could look and see the progression of of, of their overall scores and um, that was something that again gave us some information about how gradual this could be and in the old scale, it was if if a patient had a three, that meant that they were definitely diagnosed. And as I think Jack Penny said to me, um, that would be somebody that you would tell Jim Casella and Marcy McDonald that this was somebody who they had to look at, um, to because they definitely had Huntington's disease. That was the way we looked at it. But you could look at <clears throat> lower scores, you know, a zero no signs, one minimal signs and a two uh, you know with something somewhere in the middle of that. Um but you could watch those scores progress from a zero to a 3 over a period of, of years. And I think that informed us quite a bit about how long this can take to be uh, uh symptomatic.
2: Yeah. So as from a from a pediatric neurologist standpoint, um, what kind of insights did you bring to the team that maybe the adult neurologists uh, you know, really appreciated or didn't, didn't you know, in terms of the clinical evaluation, didn't really focus on?
3: I, I, I think it was more a matter of just being more comfortable with kids. I mean, I, uh, in, in, when I say that I got trained in movement disorders, I spent time in the adult clinic. But, I also had a pediatric clinic, and I've always been impressed at how hard it was to get an adult movement disorder person to come over and look at a child. That may not be true anymore, but it was <laughs> that it was true back then and And it was just, just uh, it was a matter of how do you get a child to <clears throat> perform tasks or to engage in examination in such a way that you can get meaningful um meaningful observations and so, <clears throat> excuse me. So um, I think that for the most part it was figuring out a way to get kids to cooperate uh, with that exam. And for a pediatric neurologist, that wasn't a big, big chore. It was, uh, I I think it was something that um, for most adult neurologists, it's just, uh, it's an extra step that just seems sort of uh, uh, a little too difficult at
2: times. Yeah. Um, yeah, We've talked a lot about motor symptoms um, but of course with huntingtons we appreciate a lot of non-motor symptoms particularly some of the psychiatric and cognitive and behavioral manifestations were were those symptoms uh, apparent to you particularly in in the pediatric population um, i ask i asked because i think it's one of the things that we are really struggling with now i believe in the field is trying to define when do symptoms really start
3: Yeah, and I I, I think I'd go back – I I don't know if I can comment specifically about pediatrics, but I would say, again, how ambitious and how difficult that Venezuela project was in terms of addressing these things. Because the – none of the – for example, none of the um, chief investigators were what you would call fluent in Spanish. And um, it, it, there were a number of folks. I mean, there were, every year there were people that came that had a, a background in psychology or psychiatry who were indeed fluent in uh, in Spanish, but you, obtaining a psychiatric history from folks was often very, very difficult. And mm. this is again in the context of a of a population of people that is really at the absolute bottom of the social scale. And so it's very hard to tease out how much of this is due to adverse early life events versus incipient Huntington's disease. The things that were right. most sort of, yeah. And, and, and so I don't think it was very, it, it, it was very difficult to try to tease out early subtle findings. But what I recall were things about how these folks had to manage folks who were acting out, uh, who were violent, who were really at that far end of the scale in terms of, of uh, cognitive and emotional uh, dysfunction. Um, I mean, I'll never forget there was some poor fellow who uh, was actually kept in a cage. And that was the only way that they were able to manage that individual. That was not done out of uh, spite or malice, that was, uh, how that family was able to keep this person safe and in their home. And, uh, it was, it was just shocking, but that was how it was, uh, how they, how they sort of coped. Yeah. It's a striking
2: image. Um, I mean, therapeutically, were were there options that you guys were able to uh, recommend, uh, or were there advances in kind of therapeutic decisions uh, during that time that you were able to see implemented? Not really.
3: I mean, um, I you know I've spent some time with Ira Olson, who to me was just an uh, I did spend enough time with him, but was an amazing mentor, and I remember and Ira quoted. I don't know if he was quoting Harold Klawans or if it was something he said himself but um you know that the the best thing you can do for somebody with Huntington's disease was give them haloperidol and the worst thing you can do for a person with Huntington's was give them haloperidol um yeah and and so um I I was trained in a group that really tried hard not to manage those types of motor symptoms and so we were not um Typically uh, endorsing anything like that. Now, there was an arrangement with uh, uh, a uh, generic drug company, and we did bring down lots of medications. We brought down vitamins, we brought down antibiotics. Um, I think one trip I brought down, you know, like uh, a month's supply of fentanyl um, for an individual with uh, uh, sort of in stage cancer, I mean that this was pre 11 so you you can imagine. I mean this was uh, this was there wasn't a lot of screening back then, so we did bring a lot of things to provide medical care. But other than perhaps uh, occasional antidepressants, uh, we did not treat. And I, I think the main reason for that was is we were only there a month, and so right. although there was a a, a physician who was available to the Huntington family all year long, um, she also, I think, uh, was fairly limited in terms of the interventions that she could provide.
0: We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode.
2: Um, I mean, so, I mean, you, you've had a really great vantage point to see how the field of pediatric movement disorders has evolved uh, over those years. I mean looking back now um, and to where we are currently, uh, where do you see the biggest uh, challenges for you know, pediatric Huntington's disease? Um, is it diagnosis? is it um, kind of just figuring out which issues are related to kind of Huntington's and which are related to kind of adolescence and youth? I mean what can you give us some opinions on kind of the 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 field so to speak?
3: Well, I remember um, for a long time I was a lone pediatric neurologist in, in the HSG, and um, the I, I I've, have felt for a long time that um, we spend a lot of time talking about, I mean, for many years it was talking about testing and ethical issues related to testing and, you know, why we're so few people in the United States getting tested compared to people in Europe. And, and these were all really good questions. But once a rational therapy is developed, a rational therapy, one that 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 makes some sense and has some likelihood of improvement, then I think all these testing issues go away. Um, and I was, I brought up in uh HSG meeting in, in Philadelphia, I gave a, a talk on uh what could we do to include children in uh, clinical trials for HD? And the, that, again, it sort of points towards the bias. It's sort of hard, I think, to get the adult neurology community to think about kids. It's just sort of rare to them, but from an ethical perspective and from a, um, a, a clinical trial administration perspective, it's certainly doable. It's totally doable. Um, the yeah. pro- the problem is is overcoming some of these sort of prejudices about uh, you know, oh, they're children, they're very different, et cetera. And that's true, there are, but children participate in clinical trials all over the world. The hard part with juvenile or young onset Huntington's disease is that it's just so uncommon. Um, and I right. think that it, it's going to be, and this is true for a lot of pediatric neurodegenerative diseases. They're just so rare. So it makes it a big challenge to carry out, um, a, you have to weigh a comprehensive evaluation versus the fact that that can probably only be done a couple of places. And so people will have to travel for that. And so I, I it, 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 it's really more logistical challenges, that sort of thing. I, I think that carrying out a clinical trial, doing a therapeutic study in, in pediatric uh, young onset Huntington's, I hope I get to be a part of someday. I hope it happens while I'm still practicing.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in your own practice, do you have any tips in terms of how you figure out the the decision to test a patient who's under the age of 18? I mean, is it still they've got to have clear symptoms that really make you want to test? I mean, can you give us some insights on on how you approach this issue? Yeah, so,
3: um, well, full disclosure, uh, when I came to UAB in in 1994, about two years later, I uh, I, I started the Huntington's Clinic or restarted the Huntington's Clinic at UAB, and I ran it for about 15 years. And so um I had the occasional I mean again the the number of pediatric cases that came to me is quite low but yeah. still um you know more than most people and I think that um the decision to 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 test a child you always have to worry about uh The possibility that um, you've got a, say, a 17 year old who's maybe not acting, you know, again, something is abnormal. Um, And to make a diagnosis at the time, let's say they have 70 repeats, that's one thing. But I think the real concern that people would have would be well, what if it was 41 repeats and they may not develop motor symptoms for, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years? Right. And that was always the concern that I would have is is what is what is the likelihood of having a a, a highly expanded allele and uh, would that would that change things a bit and so I think that if what people are now reporting that there is a, again a lot of premotor symptomatology in juvenile Huntington's disease or, or in Huntington's disease a lot of pre premotor symptomatology I think those questions are really gonna go away. Uh, we will probably be more aggressive about testing, or I say aggressive, but more uh, open to testing uh, younger folks. Now I have to uh, mention also, I, I think that the the sort of logistical question of, of, of testing in a child, um, and again, this is another thing that's sort of uncomfortable for adult practitioners, is that there has to be some level of assent to participate in, a, in any type of, if this is involving a clinical trial. And all this right. testing would likely begin with that. And so I believe that we have to be careful of that. We have to recognize that um, there, needs a, there needs to be a way to understand what does that child know? Uh, because you can't just round them up and draw their blood uh that's we've the the i mean multiple bodies have decided that that is wrong i agree right um and so that's something that i i did a we did an internet survey kim quade and i uh many years ago and really just wanted to look at what's you know what the parents tell their kids and when do they tell them and so i think that our and our data was again it's a small sample size and it was an internet survey but um Kids are taught something about Huntington's disease, usually about 11 or 12 years old. Uh, they may not be told that they're at risk. They may not be told everything, but there is information that's imparted. And so I think that that's the sort of thing that can be used to, uh, again, inform us about who can we recruit for clinical trials and and, uh, and do it in a way that is that meets all sort of international standards.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the other themes that we've noticed in this podcast is kind of thinking about uh, folks that are kind of early in their career and they're trying to make decisions about how they want to position themselves in the future. We've got a lot of feedback from folks that have been appreciative with some of the mentoring advice that some of our um, guests have had. I mean, if you uh, put yourselves in a in a pediatric neurology, Resident shoes. What kind of advice would you give that resident who may be considering pediatric movement disorders? Do you see it as a field of uh, immense need, uh, growth? Uh, Any any comments? I
3: I mean, I think that, uh, and of course, it's my field, so I'm biased. But um, (laughs) I, 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 it's the best field. But I mean, I think that um, we're still in pediatric movement disorders, we're still, we're behind the adult world from the standpoint of the phenomenology is just very different. Um, we're still arguing about, um, what type of, you know, what to call certain movements. And I think that that is something that we need to sort of straighten out. Um, part of the problem is, is that I think we're finding out in a lot of the genetic conditions in kids um that experience movement disorders that these movements do not lend themselves to a single uh noun it's not just korea it's korea plus something else and so i think that that people who are interested in this um need to pursue it the pursuit is hard though because an adult uh movement disorder fellowship is probably not Totally appropriate. Although um, mm-hmm. my last trainee, I, I I I had her spend a great deal of time with the adults because you need to understand Parkinson's, you need to understand Huntington's, you need to understand tremors. Um, but in the then when you move into the pediatric world, it's more complicated, a lot more complicated. And so I think that uh that's the sort of thing that the, the, the pediatric person needs to recognize is is that it's more than just a fellowship to really become an expert at this. And what's interesting is is that in the field it sort of started with um I guess to a certain extent, people like Harvey Singer at Hopkins. Um there were people that were interested in pediatrics, like Roger Curlan at uh at in Rochester. Um but the first really trained pediatric neurologists who then really did movement disorders were people like uh john mink and myself uh terry sanger in los angeles um did we carved out a piece from an adult program and then went and did, did pediatrics and people have started to follow that uh so now i can name you know 10 or 15 folks who i think are really on the way to being very competent very Knowledgeable people about pediatric movement disorders uh so i i I can't say that it's the a field that will end up with this gigantic trial that will cure cerebral palsy in the near future, but there's a real need for this uh because yeah, even absolutely. even pediatric neurologists aren't very good at the movement disorder aspect,
2: yeah, totally agree um. The, the other thing, I just would make a comment to see if you agree with this, the other thing that we've noticed, at least in our clinic, is that a lot of our uh, pediatric cases, they, they sometimes get tossed around from clinician to clinician, um, and specifically, they'll spend time with maybe um, a physical therapist, and then they'll go over to maybe a uh, uh, a psychologist because of developmental delay and um, there seems to be, at least in some of our families, uh, a hesitation to invoke Huntington's disease in some of the cases. Uh, Do you see the pediatric neurologist kind of stepping forward and and kind of becoming a hub for questions of children uh, with parents with HD and trying to kind of decipher some of these uh, clinical symptoms and whether or not they are or are not related to HD is that is that a role for the pediatric movement disorder specialist in the future?
3: Oh, I definitely agree with that. I think, but it it, it again needs to be somebody who's got some uh, level of comfort and understanding of the whole disease process. Um, and so yeah. you're right. I, I think the pediatric neurologist uh, should do that, um, but I can say that given the number of questions that I get from my peers around the country, there aren't that many folks that are super comfortable with that. And so it's a, um, it will be tough to, that's why I say if if there's say a juvenile or a young onset Huntington's disease trial in the United States, it may only be, you may only be capable of doing it at one or two sites. And, um, I'd first make sure that at those sites you've got folks that are really good, um, yeah. But you know, and 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 then you can branch out from there.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you uh, so much for being uh, with us uh, this this hour. Um, I really uh, appreciate your comments, both on your recollections of Venezuela and also your comments on on children uh, affected by HD. Um, You know, we see in our clinic, a lot of kids are the caregivers, uh, and I really view this population personally as a vulnerable population, and I think many of our colleagues do as well, but um, hopefully we and the HSG can move forward to creating better systems for uh, care uh, for this population.
3: I I could not agree with you more. I think that um, the the role that these children play I mean, this is seen in a lot of chronic diseases in childhood. That 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 um, siblings become. They take on different jobs within the family. Uh, what's unique about Huntington's, though, is is that not only do they take on a job, but they're at risk as well. And I yeah. don't. Uh, the 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 literature on that is very sparse, but would not be that hard to obtain for say, uh, a, an organization like the HSG uh, to begin to develop that sort of knowledge base of these social impacts that, that are there.
2: Absolutely.
3: Absolutely.
2: Well, Leon, thank you so much for your time. I uh, really enjoyed it. And hopefully, My we can pleasure. do it again.
1: That concludes this latest episode of the HD Insights podcast. I want to thank Dr. Doerr for joining us. And Dr. Clausen again for leading this special series looking back at how the HD Gene Hunting Project in Venezuela played out, from the researchers that participated on it. On the next episode of the HD Insights Podcast, we'll have a special guest on with Dr. Clausen to talk about the current situation for those in Venezuela, now over twenty-five years following the discovery of the HD gene, and impact on HD families in neighboring South American countries. Until next time on the HD Insights Podcast. I'm Kevin Gregory. Thank you for spending time with us. Stay safe. Be well. Look out for each other. And we look forward to bringing you our next episode.
0: We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org, or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.